Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network, and I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. And I am Mark Legere, and uh, good to join you guys uh, on the morning after uh, the Nova Scotia election. And uh, we're going we're gonna to touch on a, a few things uh, today, guys, and get your insights on the federal election that's been called uh, but and how it impacts Atlantic Canada. Uh, but I'll be can't help but start with this uh, perhaps Don's surprising election result last night, but I'd love to get your your take on uh, on things. Uh, Mark, a better word would be stunning. Um, I don't think anybody that I um, listened to predicted a majority uh, PC government, including I believe Tim Houston. <laughs> I think it was a, sub- a major surprise uh, to everybody, all the commentators uh, for sure. Um, and um, not completely unexpected, I would say. Um, it looked like it was going to be a minority government. Uh, it looked like the Liberals had been losing uh, support uh, during the campaign. Um, and uh, surprisingly, they pulled up uh, a majority win. Now, if you look at what uh, happened in the election, I think it was very interesting. It shows that elections matter. Um the Liberals entered the election with a 20-point uh, lead in voting intentions, 20 points uh, on day one of the election. And uh, they ended up losing the election by, uh, it looks like, about five points. So that's a 25-point swing from the beginning of the election to the end of the election. That is unprecedented in all my years, and there's a lot of them there. <laughs> I've never seen such a turnabout in an election. It, it, it's one for the history books, I believe. Um, and I think the reason there's uh, there's a couple reasons uh, for the surprise win. Um, one has to do uh, with the campaigns uh, that were run by the three parties. Um, I would rate uh, Tim Houston's campaign as pretty good. It was very disciplined, uh, very much on um, point. Uh, they uh, they made it clear that their priority issue was health care. Of course, health care impacts every single Nova Scotian. So you want to have an issue that impacts more uh, as many people as possible. They made some big promises. In fact, one of the things that they did that I found really interesting, they became more liberal than the liberals. <laughs> and uh, they outflanked the liberals. They, they went to the left of the liberals, which is uh, kind of the strategy Stephen McNeil did to uh, beat the Conservatives when he was Premier. He went to the right of the Conservatives and so left no room for the party to um, have any platform. And that strategy has worked. Um, and uh, and now we have, in the, in the Maritimes, we have uh, all Conservative governments for the first time in a long time. But again, looking back over my 40 years, you know, this is just part of a long evolution of politics in this region. We go through phases where it's liberal and then it's PC and then it's liberal and sometimes occasionally it's NDP in Nova Scotia. But this is this is a normal kind of movement of uh, party support. And one other thing I want to mention is uh, that, uh, you know, uh, it's very difficult to get three mandates in Nova Scotia. I think Al- Angus L. McDonald may have been the last one to have a three-term uh, run. Uh, so that might have played in it too. It might have been just a time for a change. And I've seen over the years, when there's a time for a change, it happens. There's no explanation sometimes. It just happens. People get to a point of saying, we need a change. Um, and, and just one other point, if I don't, if you don't mind, and I think it was really, really important. I haven't seen the final numbers <clears throat> But it looks like uh, turnout is low again. The last election, only 53% of Nova Scotians voted. This is a really troubling trend. Um, I think that the number will be in the same ballpark or possibly even lower when the final numbers are counted this morning. Uh, this makes elections very difficult to predict. With a small turnout, you only need a, sp- you only need a small number of voters to win a seat. And that makes them all more competitive than they would normally be because uh, you can get your core supporters to get out and vote. And, and, and you, you may only need your core supporters to win a seat. You may not need to switch many people. You just need your core supporters. And if you have a good ground game, 
you can win seats that are very unexpected. So uh, as an example, um, uh, you know, Randy Delory, one of the candidates for leadership, uh, lost to a PC candidate in Anakinish. Now, I was told to watch that seat uh, early that uh, Houston had spent a lot of time there and uh, turned out to be true. Uh, so uh, a very unusual um, election, uh, a lot of incumbents, especially for the Liberals, did not run. I think the, the number was 11. And um, that makes those seats much more competitive when there's no incumbent. And, and so just there, there's a lot of factors that came together to produce this uh, PC win. And, uh, you know, now we have, uh, we have a conservative government in Nova Scotia for the first time since I think it was 2009. Uh, David, I, I definitely, even though uh, we're a province over here right now, I'd love to get your initial thoughts too. But I, I, a question perhaps for Don first, though, and, and maybe for you, David, because I was curious about it. Um, ye- yesterday, we had published a story in Huddle on a, on a survey from uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on its Nova Scotia members. And I was surprised by the results of that survey because it showed that the election issue that was most important to those independent business owners uh, was healthcare, uh, and and I know that this obviously played in the a lot a great part in this in this campaign. Um, does it does it surprise you, Don, that those business owners? And I know that's just one survey, and there were other issues that they were interested in. But what was what was the preoccupation in Nova Scotia with healthcare that we'd even put it at the top of the list for business owners there? Well, I think the uh, the conservatives got a bit lucky uh, during the campaign uh, because there are a couple of uh, uh, issues uh, related to uh, emergency uh, care uh, and ambulances um, that got a high profile. There was one uh, gentleman that ended up with a broken hip on his driveway for uh, two hours waiting for an ambulance. And I think those those personal stories of uh, healthcare challenges really uh, help the conservatives, uh, you know, with their uh, focus on healthcare. It is surprising by no, no doubt that business would, would rank healthcare as uh, a number one core. Uh, but small business are also, you know, um, individuals uh, who are probably uh, dealing with healthcare issues in, in their in their families. And by the way, most people uh, are not talking about this, but the pandemic has put a lot of pressure on, on, on people suffering from other healthcare issues and their ability to get access to that healthcare. There's a lot of been a lot of postponement of treatment, uh, clinics, uh, surgeries, uh, you know, it's just all built up. And, and, and we keep thinking about the pandemic as the problem, but it's the other health issues that have been postponed in terms of treatment that have caused a lot of anxiety in the population. So, you know, that I think just it all built up uh, uh, the, uh, the need to uh, focus on health care for the conservatives. Liberals had no answer to that, really, because they had been in power for eight years. Uh, they played the uh, shortage of doctors, which is everywhere in Canada. And uh, there's really no answers to that because there just aren't enough docs for everybody in Canada at the moment. You need to have another form of uh, health care to deal with people needing access to primary care. So I think that that's it. That's the issue uh, and why maybe uh, small business are concerned about it because, you know, it's a personal issue and they, you know, they, uh, you know, they, they are directly impacted. Large businesses wouldn't put, put healthcare on, on there because uh, they're kind of a, these entities, uh, they're not personal as uh, small businesses are. Was uh, in terms of the economic questions and environmental questions, were what role did they play in this campaign? Like, were were they hotly debated in Nova Scotia? Did they play a part here in terms of how the economy is going to look going forward? Well, there were some. Uh, I think there were some social issues that were brought up by the NDP that did get traction. I, I'm surprised that they did not get more seats uh, because they they were promising uh, rent control uh, permanently which I'm not sure how that works, uh, David, in terms of market supply, probably not well. Uh, and, and certainly Ian Rankin uh, focused a lot of attention on the environment, uh, although he ran into a problem with Al's head uh, development, which, uh, which is kind of an anti-environmental uh, um, uh, kind of uh, problem for him. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the, 
all those issues to, uh, took a backseat, obviously, in the, in the minds of the electorate, uh, electorate to uh, the issue of health care. I think there's a few things. You know, one, it's my experience that on polls, Atlantic Canadians say the economy is their number one or number two issue. Almost every poll, healthcare tends to be up there too. But then they never vote that way. They rarely vote for the party with the best economic platform. The economy had been recovering under the Liberals. If you look at population growth the last two or three years, very strong. Lots of new immigration. The labor force had recovered. GDP was coming back a bit. So from a pure economic record perspective, they were heading on the right track. Now, COVID-19 hammered everybody. But uh, people obviously didn't vote on that. They voted on other issues like healthcare, uh, as Don said. But I do think there, you know, it'll be interesting to see who voted because there was some concern that older people would vote less because of COVID. But I doubt that given these results, uh, I suspect uh, older Nova Scotians voted pretty similar, at least to the last election. So it'll be interesting to see the breakdown of who voted and what drove their decisions. But at the end of the day, it's certainly not economic. Um, you know, because if you just look at the straight economics, things were a little rough under the Tories the last time around, and they were much better, at least in the last four years, uh, under the Liberals. Well, could I just say, you know, uh, if you look at the map uh, now, it's been redrawn in terms of uh, which party controls various parts of the province. Uh, the Tories control virtually all the mainland. And most of Cape Breton, uh, it's the Liberals and the NDP that control Metro. And what we have is two different economies represented in that representation. Mainland does not do as well as Metro. Metro, as we've talked about before, is a, is a growing powerhouse economically. The rest of the province is not. And so, you know, David, uh, the economy is important to people outside of Halifax, probably disproportionately important. Uh, it didn't play a role in this election, uh, uh, clearly. But, it, but you know, that's something that we've talked about, the need to um, spread prosperity around to the region outside the major cities. And, and none of the parties really address that issue. Uh, and... Uh, uh, which is, uh, which I think is just postponing the inevitable. Because if you live in places like Yarmouth or Amherst or New Glasgow, places where the population is under uh, duress and shrinking to some extent, uh, where the economies are struggling, um, we need to answer those 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 issues. And uh, the, this election did not answer those issues, in my view. Yeah, I would just say quickly. That's absolutely right, Don. I appreciate you raising that. I was looking sort of pan. If you aggregate Nova Scotians, but you're right when you break it down, you know the uh, Halifax Metro is NDP and Liberal, and just about everywhere else is is blue. The ma the map this morning is almost entirely blue. So those folks may have been more interested in the economy. I'm not uh, I'm not sure. I'll take your direction on that. Yeah, exactly. Um, just you know, I know we want to pivot to talking about the the federal election soon. Uh, but was interested in a, in a couple more thoughts from you guys on this election regarding the economy. So I'm interested to hear you say, Don, that because the, the economic engine in some ways of the province and, and where a lot of the growth is taking place still remains, you know, largely liberal, largely uh, NDP. And then the conservatives, um, you know, succeeded outside of Halifax Metro largely. Um, how do you guys now i know you guys are numbers guys and analysis guys and and it's you know making these kinds of like prognostications the day after an election are difficult but what what do you see for nova scotia going forward on the economy with this this conservative government what what do they need to focus on and what do they need to do and that's you know notwithstanding the fact that the economy really didn't play a huge role in this campaign I think the New Brunswick government has figured out, and I think Nova Scotia is coming alongside, that they do have to look outside of Halifax. And so if you think about the New Brunswick government, we are starting to see immigrant numbers ticking up in smaller places. It's a slow increase, but places like Miramichi are starting to see numbers going up. And I think that's what Nova Scotia will have to do, to Don's point earlier. They will have to say, what's the growth plan for Cape Breton? What's the growth plan for the Digby-Yarmouth region? What's the growth plan for Amherst, uh, that region of the province? You know, not everybody has the potential to grow like Halifax, and that, that makes common sense. But there must be opportunities for growth, starting with how do you ensure there's enough workers 
just to sustain the labor force in Amherst and Yarmouth, because right now, you know, they're seeing uh, more retirements than entrance to the workforce. So they just need to think about how do we, you know, maintain the level of workforce in these areas in Cape Breton, for example, uh, before they even think about growth. So I think they'll, they'll have to pivot to the rest of the province. I don't know, Don, if they will. But the voters have kind of decided, right, because that's the core of the conservative vote. So maybe they'll put more focus on that. But you can't ignore the economic engine. And I think that that's what the mayor of Halifax would say. That's what the folks at the Halifax Partnership would say is, look, you know, we understand you've got a whole province here, but don't ignore the economic engine that's Halifax. Well, you know, the problem uh, that the Conservative Party have in Nova Scotia is they, they're weak in the metro area. They have to figure out a way to um, build their support in Halifax and the region. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a separate issue, uh, a longer term separate issue. Uh, I've had conversations with Tim Houston. I, he's, he's a practical, uh, he's a very practical uh, guy. Um, he will be looking at the economic challenges, uh, especially outside the region. I'm convinced of that. I, I, I think he's, from my conversations with him, he understands the importance of population growth everywhere. Uh, he's not going to back away from that. Uh, and, and, you know, he's going to spend, he's promised to spend a lot of money. I think a half a billion dollars uh, on healthcare care um, investments alone. Um, you know, that's going to be an economic stimulus all on its own. Let's not talk about debts and deficits because nobody wants to, but, you know, our debt in this province is going to, you know, uh, we're going to head by the end of his mandate. I think we're going to be at around $20 billion and around $15 billion right now. You know, so that's an increase probably of 30% or more of our debt. And, and we've all we've talked about the long term consequences of debt if interest rates start to go up and, and they're they're considerable. They take a lot of money from program spending uh, to service the interest. Uh, and they, even in a low debt environment, the, those numbers are, are significant today. Uh, but in the short term, that will act as a stimulus uh, to the economy and probably everywhere in the province. So if they if they start to invest in, you know, they, they're talking about building 2,500 long-term care uh, beds, and that will be uh, around the province. Well, that's a big investment. Uh, that's uh, that's not just construction jobs. Uh, that's uh, long-term health care uh, jobs everywhere. So, you know, that will have an impact, a positive impact, short-term and even long-term on, uh, on the economy in Nova Scotia. So you can look forward to uh, the economy uh, – having um, uh, a positive uptick uh, just on that public spending alone. Now, of course, we don't know what's going to happen in the federal level uh, <laughs> at the federal election and what kind of spending promises will be made for this region in Nova Scotia, but that will be on top of everything else. So, you know, uh, public spending is going is to be a big part of our life in Nova Scotia and maybe the region for the next number of years. Uh, 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 Tim Houston uh, has stated publicly that he does not believe or he believes that the economy will be able to balance the budget in six years. Six years. So we got a, we got a lot of public spending uh, and deficit spending uh, to go through o- over the next uh, number of years. But I think Justin Trudeau must be just a little bit more nervous this morning because the Conservatives, as Don said, outflanked the Liberals on the left by promising huge spending and and kinds of investments that even the Liberals didn't touch. And federally, you have Aaron O'Toole going after the union vote very hard, you know, bashing big banks and big industry uh, and large businesses. So he's trying to carve out the blue collar union workforce, mostly in Ontario. So I think that and uh, coupled with the sort of roiling in the in the in the electorate and, and Don's comments earlier about the big swing in the polls, I think Justin Trudeau probably is just a little bit more nervous this morning than he was when he woke up yesterday morning. Well, that's that's a, a good way, David, to to segue into the conversation about the federal election, and and you do hear a lot of people, you know, saying that the day after the Nova Scotia election, right? About what does this mean for the federal one? Um, why was this called? Do you think this federal election pivoting to it, and was it a wise decision to call it, especially in perhaps in light of what happened last night in Nova Scotia? Well, I'll start. I think Trudeau has very forcefully stated he needs a mandate from the people. 
because the programs and investments that his government is making right now are going to impact the, the next generation of Canadians, and he needs a mandate. So that that's his core argument. Everybody else, every other party is saying, you don't need an election. We're, we're into a fourth wave in much of the country of COVID, uh, and this was just superfluous. The, the government was working. The NDP was propping up the Liberals on just about everything that they wanted to do. So the, that's sort of one aspect of the federal election that we'll see how if that impacts voters but then the other issue is is what this, the parties are actually proposing and like i said the only thing that i find interesting right now is that the conservatives are trying to outflank the liberals when it comes to the union vote and the blue collar vote particularly in central canada assuming that they'll pick up all the conservatives or most of the conservatives uh in western canada not sure how that plays in atlantic canada right we don't have a very large union workforce here so I'm not sure what Aaron O'Toole is going to do to try and carve out um, uh, votes here. But, you know, we've seen in past election, if the momentum is heading toward the Conservatives, this region will, will go lockstep. We've seen that in other elections when there's been a big Tory um, sweep across the country. It's also occurred here in Atlanta, Canada. It's very rare, you know, this, this region will go all Liberal. It'll never go all Conservative, but in my, uh, my 30-some years of looking at it, it will go considerably conservative if there's a national momentum toward the conservatives. So we'll see. Yeah, I, you know, this is completely opportunistic uh, by the Trudeau government. Uh, they don't like having a, being in a minority position. They were it's, it was all about getting the majority, taking advantage of the pandemic uh, bump that uh, governments have had. Uh, what the Nova Scotia election has shown is that you can beat an incumbent government during COVID uh, because every government, well, maybe with the exception of Ford and Kenny, uh, have uh, got a uh, bump in their favorable to favorability ratings as a result of uh, COVID, at least in the early parts. So this is all about opportunity and, um, you know, uh, strategic, strategic thinking about when, when's the best time to have an election. Now, I think there, there's a there's a possibility that there's a segment of the population who will punish the Liberals for calling the election at this time, especially with the rising number of um, the Delta variant uh, and COVID cases in Central Canada. And, um, you know, people are going to question how smart that was to do it. Um, you know, people are still going to be under some restrictions in some parts of the country. And... Um, this pandemic is not over in Canada. And um, I think that they may think that they're focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, uh, there, there are very few, except for New Brunswick, there are very few uh, MPs that are conservative in this region at the moment. But now we have, we have three conservative uh, uh, governments in, in, in the Maritimes. That helps. That helps from an organizational point of view, from, you know, motivation point of view, from uh, ground game, all those sort of things. So uh, uh, the conservatives uh, actually stand to gain now seats, I think, in this region as a result of what's happened provincially. You know, and every seat counts. Um, you know, I, I actually don't think uh, that the Trudeau will get a majority. I, I think that uh, I think he'll be surprised like Rankin was surprised. He may win government, but I think we're going to be more likely not at this point, and things can change as they did last night. We'll more likely be back in the minority situation after this federal election, and it will all be for naught. And uh, and I think it will help um, the conservatives and old tool especially to gain more of a national profile because, he, you know, let's face it, he's not as well known as Trudeau. And so... It, this may be about the next election, and if it's a minority situation federally, uh, you can bet it's not going to be long before that next election comes along. No, I was just going to say that I think that's right about Aaron O'Toole, right? He's not well known. So if Don is right in his prediction and there's a minority election, a minority result, I think O'Toole will hold on to his job and he will be better positioned uh, to win in a subsequent election somewhere again another year or two down the road we don't seem to go four years with minority governments no and it, and it seems to have given you know recent governments that have called elections a reason to call them in the pandemic too right because it'd be interesting to see if a shift happens because i think if i'm right guys and you, correct me if i'm wrong 
this the Nova Scotian one was the the fourth provincial election during the pandemic. I think it was the fourth. It was at least the third because there was the New Brunswick one. There was a BC one. Yeah, there and, was Newfoundland and Labrador too. Yeah, and Newfoundland and Labrador. And is this is this the first one to see a change in government? I think it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And of course, in New Brunswick, uh, Blaine Higgs was able to get a majority out of it. Um, and uh, uh, as was Andrew Furry in uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, the BC situation exactly the same. So, you know, people may be reaching a point in this pandemic where they're saying, "Oh my God, we need to do something different." Like, you know, uh, time to move on uh, to the future. I don't know. I think that there's something that that certainly happened in the Nova Scotia election that. Uh, is interesting and yet uh, hard to uh, uh, unpack at the moment. Yeah, and because I know Blaine Higgs certainly, you know, that was another example like Trudeau's where he didn't really, you know, need to call that election. That was that was more strategic, like this one. And and Blaine Higgs ended up, you know, getting getting what he wanted, which was the majority, and maybe a little bit of that conventional thinking around the pandemic is being is being flipped here. <laughs> we yeah. don't know, you know, we'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Curious uh, what you guys think about, you know, we want to talk about, you know, the key, obviously, economic issues across the country, but also focusing in particular on the Atlantic. Um, generally speaking, what, what are the critical, critical national issues here uh, that we're going to confront? You know, both the ones that are going to be popular with the public, but also the ones that are just important to tackle. Well, uh, you know, I, there's at the national level, you know, we have a lot of issues uh, that have gone unaddressed. And they're maybe for the public not that important, but for the economy, they're very important. So, you know, uh, a national energy uh, uh, plan that, uh, you know, the sharing of electric power, uh, having um, energy corridors, uh, those things are important, uh, both short-term and long-term for the economic health of uh, Canada, and especially this region, by the way, that is disadvantaged by not having, you know, uh, uh, pipelines coming directly into this region. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a, I think for the general population, a second tier uh, issue, but for the economy, it's an important first tier uh, issue um, that uh, that needs to be addressed. Uh, obviously, um, uh, the environment in Canada is uh, in reaching the targets that we promised. I think is a is now an accepted um, um, sort of uh, agenda item for Canadians. They get it. They they're on board, um, and uh, the move to uh, electrifying the. Um, the economy, uh, I think, uh, will continue. A lot of promises about electric cars, for instance, from, I think, um, especially the Liberals and the NDP, uh, will be high on the agenda to uh, get us uh, weaned off fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, most people don't realize that we'll be on fossil fuels for decades yet, but um, uh, there's no way we can get off it um, any quicker. So those are those are some of the issues um, that I would uh, think are, uh, are going to be important nationally. Yeah, I mean, I think nationally climate change and our, our, our commitments to reducing carbon emissions is, is an important issue. Every party has mentioned it in their platform as a, as a goal. Conservatives are backing down a little bit on the carbon tax and sort of bringing those numbers down a bit, but it's, it is in every plan. Everybody's focused on it. I just think we have not properly costed it. We haven't properly told Canadians what it's going to cost them. I was very annoyed a few weeks ago when Ian Rankin uh, announced a massive uh, uh, green energy uh, investment in Nova Scotia and actually made it sound like it was going to reduce costs. Uh, yeah. No talk of you know needing to balance the green energy with 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 stable power and 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 all of the other issues that come with that. So I'm just saying on on climate change, it's very very important for any government, any federal government, to be honest with the people. You know, are are electricity rates over time going to go up as a share of household income? Tell us what is the impact of of increasing carbon taxes on the businesses. And individuals, how is it going to affect this region? This region where we have a lot more rural people that rely on their trucks and that drive in from long long distances to go to urban centers, right? So we know the clean fuel standard is going to be more of a challenge in Atlanta, Canada, because of the rural population. So that's all I'm saying on climate change: is we need to have more honesty 
they're trying to make it sound like we can have our cake and eat it. We can go green and not only will it not cost us anything, it's going to reap all these great benefits. And I think there are going to be some benefits, but if you think about the industries that are going to be lost, like oil and gas extraction, oil refining here in New Brunswick, one of the large, if not the largest private sector employer in New Brunswick. So there are going to be losses and there are going to be costs. And I think on climate change, it would be great to have a federal government, you know, that would give it to the people straight. I'm not sure people want it straight, but just in general, I think Don's right. I think people vote first on personal issues, issues that affect them and their household. And then they step back and think about other things like the, the global environment, you know, other issues that aren't related to them. So politicians, first and foremost, that's why they're focused on health care. Uh, and in some elections, that's why they're focused on jobs. But I don't think there'll be a lot of talk about jobs. Uh, O'Toole is promising a million new jobs. And the answer for O'Toole is who's going to fill them? You've already got shortages. The CFIB is that's their number one issue. Cham National Chamber of Commerce, number one issue. Where are the workers going to come from for industries right now? And if you're going to create another thousand jobs, the, the real question for the conservatives is where are the workers going to come from for those thousand jobs? Million jobs, not thousand jobs, million jobs. Million jobs, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the uh, I support uh, the federal government plan uh, that has, uh, you know, its goal of having at least 400,000 immigrants coming to the country every year. My concern is that we need to get a bigger share of that than in the past. And uh, this is the challenge I think that this region has uh, with the federal politicians. They, you know, we are kind of forgotten often in the, in the, uh, in the, what's going on in the country, but we've never, we, you know, we spent 50 years not getting our share and we need a catch up. We need a catch up phrase uh, phase uh, for population growth. I think population growth continues to be a big issue in Canada for labor force issues, as David has mentioned. And, and clearly, uh, if we want our economy to continue to grow, uh, we're going to need um, to focus on that labor force need. So that's going to be a big that's going to be a big issue regionally, probably a bigger issue regionally than it is nationally, because nationally, you know, there's already a lot of people coming in to fill some of those uh, those uh, job requirements. But Don, you're a numbers guy. I just mm -hmm. looked at the Ontario projections, Ontario government projections, population projections through 2040 this week. They are looking to double their immigrant immigration, annual immigration by 2030 from the levels of today from 2021. Yeah. So 400,000 is not going to cut it. It's not going to be enough. If, if, if Ontario wants 100,000 more, Nova Scotia yeah. wants more, Newfoundland and Labrador just announced last week that they want more immigrants. So we're going to have to get to 500, maybe higher uh, within the next few years if all of the provincial uh, targets for immigration are going to be hit. And then if they're not, who wins? So this is my concern. This is a real risk. If Ontario says we want 210,000 immigrants by 2030 or whatever it is, they're going to get them because they have the votes, they have the political power. So I still come back to my thesis that I've made on this podcast many times before that the national immigration targets should be a roll-up of provincial aspirations. Uh, and then you w let that number end up where it needs to end up. But if, if Nova Scotia wants more, if New Brunswick wants more, if PEI wants to sustain its current level of immigration, if Newfoundland and Labrador wants more, and if Ontario wants to double their number by 2030, the question is where are they going to come from? And then how do you ask Canadians, some of whom are, are a little bit skeptical of higher immigration, that we're going to go from 350 to 400 to possibly 500 within a decade. And that has to be a national conversation about why those numbers are going to be needed to support population growth. They can start to taper off after, after the boomers and after some of the healthcare issues related to the elderly population. But for the next decade, you know, there's a choice that needs to be made. And I don't know, I mean, obviously productivity matters. So if there's some massive revolution in productivity where you don't need truckers anymore, where you don't need retail workers anymore, where you, if you don't need frontline restaurant workers anymore because everybody's going to order with their smartphone, then maybe you don't need as much labor. But based on the past decade and based on current trends, I think we're going to need a, actually a big increase in immigration. So that's a national issue, but it's definitely an issue we need to focus on here in Atlantic Canada. The, the the challenge that I have with just opening it up to a lot more immigration is the ability to absorb 
uh, you know, without a lot of pain, all those new people. Uh, Canada for 60 years has grown at about a 1% rate a year. That is a good rate to uh, bring people in and not disrupt the economy, either in a province or, or across the country, generally speaking. Uh, you know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. We don't have much political power in Atlantic Canada. I remember when the Liberals swept the region, had all the seats in, in this region. I went up to Ottawa. I think I talked about this in the past, but it's worth repeating. And I presented to the, to the Atlantic caucus, and I, and I said, I looked at them. I said, you know, um, this room holds the balance of power in, in Parliament right now. You, you can get anything you want done now it, it probably will never happen again at that time there were four uh, atlantic uh, liberal premiers as well so everything was aligned for a power grab <laughs> they did not have the courage to do that unfortunately if they had acted together we could have had immigration resolved we could have probably a bunch of other issues resolved uh, just by a pure power play saying we had the balance of power so, you know, as I've talked about in the past, every year uh, Atlantic, become, Atlantic Canada becomes a smaller part of the country, both by a population count and by the size of the economy. We, we, we become less relevant every year. I, I mean, people will hate me to say that, but, you know, that's the way things work. It's who has the most votes. I mean, there are going to be more seats uh, assigned to Parliament at some point. They're not coming from this region. They're coming from provinces that are growing, including Alberta and BC and Ontario. So the power is continue, going to continue to sw switch, uh, switch away from this region. And, uh, you know, that's what worries me. You know, we need to be treated fairly and we become a smaller part of the country every day. So I'm not sure how that's going to actually happen. Look, Don, there's 38 million people in Canada. If we wanted your 1% rate for immigration, that would be just under 400,000. That would be tickety-boo. If everybody got 1%, that, that might make a lot of sense. The problem is it doesn't work that way. No. Uh, Ontario, as I just said, Ontario wants 1.8% or 1.7%, and BC wants lots, and Alberta wants more now. So yeah. all I'm saying is that if you don't take into consideration the provincial demand or aspirations, you yeah. end up with somebody saying, Don Mills is right, we only need 400,000. How do we carve that up? And politically, Ontario says you carve it up by giving us more yeah well you know i would i would like to start with a a, a commitment of at least one percent and you know let's go from there like you know that uh, that every province has a right to have a minimum number of immigrants coming and then the rest is up for negotiation but like let's get to one percent a year that is a number that we can absorb in this region that will help us grow our economy, replace our labor force, and we'll be in much better shape if we just get that 1% as a starting point. And then we can fight for the rest. You know what I mean? Let's, let's get the guarantee and we'll move from there. If I understand what you're saying, then David, you, you would, and, and Don, you would be looking at a 1% target in Atlantic Canada, regardless of what the rest of the country was looking for. So it could be 2% in Ontario, so the levels the levels would increase or stay the same depending on provincial need? I would say as a minimum. I mean, yeah. you know, as like Halifax already grows well above that every year. They're at 1.9 or something, 1.8. But as a minimum, 1%. And then trying to figure out underneath that, what does that look like in terms of workforce demand, in terms of technological change and so on. But if yes, if, if any national government would commit to at least 1%, immigration in each province. The problem is even even there because you have natural population decline in New Brunswick, so you have more deaths and births. Hmm. So even 1% from immigration is not actually going to grow your population by 1%. If you want to grow your population by 1% per year, you actually have to have more to offset this decline in the natural birth rate yeah. uh, or natural population growth rate, which you actually in Ontario, the population growth rate is positive and so, and so it, it is in uh, places like Alberta as well. There's more births than deaths. But in this region, I think PEI might be swinging right now. I'd have to yes, relook at PEI those Yes, PEI is going the other way They've because of their gr growth, which, by the way, is a lot more than 1%. So, you know, they've been able to attract more people to uh, their province proportionally than the other uh, three Atlantic provinces. So, there, you know, there's obviously uh, some scope um, to allow that to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, here's, the, here's some good news, I think, about the region. Um, 
it doesn't matter which party runs the province. Um, they all recognize now that immigration and population growth is key. You know, that wasn't the case 10 years ago, for sure. The second positive thing is that this region is, it, it, generally speaking, not entirely, but generally speaking, open to uh, immigrants and, and new people from different countries coming in. And our, our, our acceptance, uh, which is a big challenge in this region, is getting better year by year at the moment. But even in a, in a place like PEI that has had a lot of population growth, there's a little bit of resistance now coming into the pace of that growth. So that's the balance that we have to figure out in this region. Before we move on to, you know, some some of the other sort of critical issues uh, that I know you want to talk about, just a, a political question for you, in particular for you, Don, because of a comment you made earlier about these Atlantic Canadian MPs holding, you know, holding the balance of power in some ways, especially in a minority situation where margins were so thin. I remember having a, a conversation with a, a, somebody from Ontario and St. John years ago, and and he, you know, over a coffee, he was kind of laughing at Atlantic Canada's political clout. And this was going back 15 years, you know, because there's so few seats in the Atlantic that in a majority government situation, you're just not paying attention to Atlantic Canada. You're paying attention to Toronto, Ontario, Calgary, the West. It's just from a political point of view, you're just not going to see Atlantic yeah. Canada tended to. And and so I'm one of these people who uh, who actually likes, like, likes, I mean, there's the challenges in a minority government, but I actually have favored a minor, minority government situation for the Atlantic just because if they're competitive elections, 10 seats matter. Uh, 20 seats matter. Um, so my, that's a long, you know, rambled on to ask you a question around. Hmm. So what do Atlantic Canadian MPs and, and premiers need to say to make that balance of power work for them? Because you had said that it was a missed opportunity to, to, get, to get tough uh, for Atlanta, on behalf of Atlantic Canada. Well, they already, they already caucus as a, a region. <clears throat> you know, uh, what they don't have is, uh, um, you know, they don't have teamwork. Um, they don't have, uh, I, I think they've tried a little bit in the past to look at issues, economic issues and, and, and immigration issues. And, and, and they've done some work. I, you know, the Atlantic immigration pilot, uh, you know, is, is maybe an example of uh, some success from the Atlantic caucus. But it, it, it's hard to get provinces and, and their representatives together at the best of times. But in this region, we have a special, we have a special uh, relationship between the four Atlantic provinces. It's different than any other part of the country. We, we kind of think as a region, generally speaking anyway, not entirely, but, but uh, more than any other part of the country. Um, I, you know, you would hope that um, whoever wins the next federal election, the Atlantic caucus gets together and outlines what they want to achieve as a group. And they put a strategy together on that. And that, you know, then they'll represent not just their province well, but the region well, because, you know, we are all kind of in the same pot in this region in terms of our challenges. The challenges are not dissimilar from one, one province to another. You know, we're at various, you know, uh, different levels of, of problems, but nonetheless, we all share the same problem. So, you know, I, I could imagine with, you know, but you need, a, you need a few strong MPs to be able to bring that together. You know, when you have a person like Dominic uh, LeBlanc or, you know, um, uh, uh, others of the, that are in cabinet, you know, that that have the political count are the Atlantic Canadian sort of uh, strong political uh, voice. It's up to those those people to provide leadership to the caucus and to organize them and to be able to lobby and use their voice in a, in a sort of more cohesive, unified way. And you know, it's, it just it just seems to be very difficult to do that for some reason. Yeah, I, I would just echo that if the four provinces were aligned on issues with when it comes to the federal government, that would be uh, there'd be a lot more political power with two point two million population than than the individual provinces. And I think Don's right; we share a, a lot of issues. I, I, we had been decoupling, right? If you think about uh, offshore natural gas in Nova Scotia, if you think about the offshore sector in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, those two provinces were becoming far more dependent on uh, oil and gas than PEI in New Brunswick. But of course, gas kind of dried up in Nova Scotia and, and, and it's a little bit precarious right now in Newfoundland and Labrador, although I'm pretty optimistic that there's you know at least 20 or 30 years of some economic ac activity out there. 
Um, but yeah, I think there's, you know, we share an interest in immigration. We share an interest in regional economic development. We share an interest in a number of key industries, ICT, uh, tourism, and so on. And I think there's, there's power in numbers and uh, coming together as a region makes a lot of sense. Now we've, we've talked about, you know, mainly about immigration uh, so far in terms of the, a key priority for Atlantic Canada. And obviously that's, that's top of the list. Uh, what are some of the other issues around, you know, infrastructure investment and economic development? Well, I would, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I would really like to see is free trade within the country, period. You know, take down all the barriers that we have between the provinces, behave as a single marketplace. You know, it might hurt in the short term, some sectors a little bit more than others. But I think generally speaking, it would be a positive uh, move to open up uh, the borders, basically, and, and get rid of some of the regulations that, that, that hurt individual provinces and regions like Atlantic Canada. That, that you know, I actually think we could do this in Atlantic Canada on our own. We could create a, a free market in Atlantic Canada uh, pretty easily if we if we set it as a as an agenda item and i think that that would just make the flow of goods and services and people across borders way easier we would have a common certification for you know whatever uh, the service would be it would just make it a lot easier and it might make it easier to attract people to this region as well uh, you know you think about uh, certification for people coming from other countries, for instance, we had a common certification uh, process for new docs coming from different countries or professionals coming from other countries. It would be a much more welcoming place for people to come and it would be easier for them to integrate into our society. So that to me is not, not often talked about, but I think it's, a, you know, from a business point, point of view, it would take a, some of the problems. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a business interest now that does, uh, business in uh, three maritime provinces and you know the rules are different and uh it just makes it harder you know there's more red tape to deal with than necessary um you know the movement of our people cross borders you know during the pandemic is a good example you know we had different rules for different provinces and what we could do it, it made no sense and it just made business harder to do so i'd like that i would put that on the agenda how about starting Don, with Nova Scotia allowing New Brunswick bees to come into Nova Scotia. No, no bees from New Brunswick. I mean, you know, every time I go to Nova Scotia, there's that big sign, no bees allowed. I, I mean, that's unfair. That's discriminatory. Our bees, you know, are just as, 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 as viable in this region as Nova Scotia bees. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the only problem is that, you know, and I've heard this from politicians, it, it, they think it's the first step toward regional amalgamation. So yes, if you start harmonizing rules, if restaurants all have the same rules, if if trucking trucking firms have the same rules on 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 the roads and everything else, that well, why don't we just merge the four provinces? And and while that even actually might be a good idea, at least the Maritimes, um, there's a lot of pushback when you talk to bureaucrats and politicians at the provincial level, because they don't want amalgamation of this region into one political entity. And they, they say that. So I think you can do it without merging the three provinces. I think that's a red herring. And I think you're absolutely right. It would be very interesting to see one or more political parties uh, offering uh, or, or promoting the idea of much better regional cooperation, including complete free trade uh, within Atlantic Canada. Yeah, just on the issue of uh, amalgamation of the provinces, especially the maritime provinces, I think there's no possibility of a political union of uh, the provinces. I do think there's an, uh, an opportunity for an economic union uh, and maybe having the same regulations is a step in that direction. So I can imagine, as an example, in Atlantic Canada, having a common health uh, department, uh, you know, to pr provide us with, um, you know, a more organized uh, uh, you know, a way of providing health across the three uh, uh, Atlantic provinces, especially, or three maritime provinces, especially, you know, the, it, it, you know, you get into the debate and I think the, uh, this was, this has been discussed in the past about where you locate the headquarters for, for each of these departments, but the transportation department is another, you know, uh, interesting opportunity in terms of negotiating contracts, there'll be more power behind purchasing medical equipment and supplies and, and there's some of that being done now cooperatively i get it 
but you know, those provide some opportunities. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime, but it's uh, it's always interesting to talk about those things. Don, as a man of your vintage, I, I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> I mean, that that we can't even get Amherst la- healthcare laundry to be laundered in the Moncton uh, uh, healthcare laundry facilities because there's a provincial border there, even though the Amherst laundry is a lot more closer to Moncton. So there's all kinds of opportunity oh, yeah. for sharing costs in healthcare. You could do teleradiology for the entire region from one jurisdiction. You could do uh, procurement from one jurisdiction. You could do telehealth from one jurisdiction and get the, the cost benefits of synergy there. But the provinces don't want to lose the jobs. They don't want to lose the control. They don't want to lose the power. And they're still chafing 25 years later uh, of uh, amalgamating uh, Atlantic Lottery into Moncton. So I think you're a bit optimistic. I'd love to see it. And again, it would be interesting if a politician would state it as a political goal publicly, because then that might provide a, a, motive, a, a, a motive to do it. But I think there's lots of opportunity to share pharmaceutical purchases, and I think there is some movement in that area. But there's a number of other issues on healthcare that could be done regionally that would save costs and benefit the, 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 the people of this region. Uh, but it takes a kind of political will that I'm not sure you're going to see. We, they are collaborating on a few little things. But on the big stuff like that, because I've said, and I think I've said on this show before, that for me, it's quid pro quo. If you put all the teleradiology into Halifax, that's a lot of high paying jobs that leave Moncton or leave New Brunswick or leave Prince Edward Island or Charlottetown or whatever. So then what are you going to give Charlottetown? So in my view, you put telemedicine in New Brunswick, you put teleradiology in Newfoundland, you put, right, you, you'd almost do a quid pro quo. You split up these these the economic benefits so that each province gets a little something, and then maybe you get a better chance of success. No, I think you know uh, you brought up a, a really interesting example. Atlantic Lotto has actually been very successful at what it does. You know, it has regional offices, so not all the jobs are in Moncton, but the head co- head office jobs are in Moncton. I think people are mostly over that, David. <laughs> But, you know, it's been a long time since that was formed. Uh, and uh, can I tell you a funny little story about Atlantic Lotto? I, I always like to tell this story. Uh, so when I, uh, when I was doing my MBA, I was part of a, a student consulting company called Atlantic Business Consulting. And uh, one of our projects was to uh, do some research to support a lottery for the Nova Scotia sport uh, Nova Scotia sport. They needed to have some funding. And it was out of that initiative. They did do, they did do that lottery, but it was out of that initiative that the Atlantic lottery was actually formed. Uh, later on, because of my experience as a student running that little consulting company, I formed uh, corporate research associates with a, a partner. And uh, lo and behold, one of our big clients over the years became Atlantic lottery. <laughs> How's that for a circle of virtue? <laughs> yeah you get you know you get to be at my age you get a lot of stories that come out over time <laughs> lots of interconnections <laughs> yeah speak, speak, speaking of interconnections um i'd like to segue to a quick conversation about the regions the region's airports and 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 the role of the federal government in you know helping those uh airports recover not just recover from the pandemic, but, you know, we're facing challenges, generally speaking, with flights in and out of the region. And, and, and we talk about squabbles between the regions, you know, the relative strength of Fredericton's airport versus St. John's versus Moncton's versus Halifax. Like this continues to be a conversation even with separate airport authorities. Um, wh- where are we going in the region with, with the airports and where does the, where's the federal role here? Look, Halifax is going to be fine. It's solidified its its position as the regional airport in Atlantic Canada. Um, I don't have any concern with that airport. It's an international. It's got pre-clearance. It's going to be fine. It, the rest of the region is more problematic. So I've been saying we, instead of building back better, we need to at least build back to what it was before. The airlines have said publicly they'd like to see less airports in New Brunswick. Uh, they'd like to see at least one close. And the question is, which one do you close? And then there's talk of doing one central airport in Sussex and a lot of other uh, pretty crazy stuff in turn, if you think about it logically. So my view is we need to have from the national government uh, a strategy 
given the strategic importance of airports as a transportation tool in this country, we need to have a national strategy. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean a lot of subsidization, but it means that we have a national commitment from the federal government so that places like Cape Breton, uh, places like Moncton, places like Charlottetown have at least a commuter airport, right, that can actually get business travelers and, and, and Canadians to hubs like Montreal, Toronto, and, and even Halifax. So I think that that's what I'd like to see from the federal government, a real commitment, because the airline industry, because of the stresses on that industry, they're now, you know, they're, they're going to cut services, they're going to consolidate services, they're going to raise prices potentially, and service could be impacted. So my view is the strategy needs to be at least to get back to pre-pandemic levels where these secondary airports like St. John and Moncton and, and Fredericton all had multiple carriers serving them. So you had competition. They had multiple destinations, Ottawa, Montreal, uh, Toronto. And so you had competition, right? And, and so prices were moderated in, in a market-driven way. If you go back to a situation where there's one airline flying into, I don't know, St. John once or twice a day, it's going to, over time, push up prices. There's going to be less quality uh, and it's not going to be a good system. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not opposed to Sussex as a, as a theoretical concept, but I think the national position and all uh, federal party leaders should should have some sort of commitment. It's not just Atlantic Canada. You've got Northern Ontario. You've got lots of places across the country, the interior of BC, uh, that if you don't have at least decent commuter airports, uh, it's going to be uh, very hard on those economies to grow. Considering, think about all the immigrants coming in and all the international students. How are you going to support all that if you actually weaken your airport system? Yeah, so I'm not I'm not really worried about the the airports so much because um, market demand will uh, determine um, the flights that come in from outside the region. I think one of the real benefits of the pandemic, frankly, is that we're we're starting to build a better uh, regional uh, sort of connectivity uh, with airlines. The PAL. Uh, airline uh, is starting to fill a market niche that was very badly managed by Air Canada. They had terrible regional service, bad schedules, crummy planes, high prices. Like, and that's the problem of having only a single uh, provider. <clears throat> and and so I, I feel uh, optimistic about regional travel. Uh, it's important to keep all those airports open for regional travel uh, at some level. Uh, and and every, everybody's going to find a role. Uh, there's some new players coming in. Flair um, uh, is, uh, it looks like, uh, going to be uh, flying to a lot of airports. You know, demand is going to drive service. For the for the national and international work, obviously, uh, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that there's a local player coming to, and I always thought there was an opportunity for a local player to service the uh, the region itself, and then to tie into the national airline. So I, I think it will I think it will sort it, sort itself out. I, I don't see any possibility, David, of of agreement to have a single airport in uh, in New Brunswick. I think that that opportunity time has come and gone. Well, guys, uh, we're coming up on an hour here, so we probably should wrap. And I got a feeling, too, we thinking we'll probably be doing this again, either late in the campaign or just post-election um, uh, to see see how these issues and these conversations evolve as we go. Uh, you know, I'll leave it to you guys to decide when the, the, the best timing for another chat like this is. Um, before we close, is there any any final thoughts, any any predictions, or do we leave that? Yeah, I just well, I have one more thought. I, I do think I'd like to have a federal leader, a premier, but also a government that understood that you need to have customized approach based on provincial needs. And so we've seen quite a bit of friction between the current government, federal government, and the Higgs government in New Brunswick, and that may be a Higgs problem. We can talk about where the issues lie there. But on things like childcare and infrastructure investments, there's been quite a bit of disagreement and there's been money left on the table. And I just think in the long run, you're better off, even if it's a liberal and a conservative or a conservative and a liberal, you're better off if there's good working relationships between the premier and prime minister. And I'd like to see that here. I won't make a prediction. Maybe Don will. <laughs> I, uh, one one comment that I would like to make, and I was I've been asked about this uh, already, is uh, uh, the 
the increasing difficulty to do polling for an election in Canada with declining voter turnout. This is a real this is a real problem in our industry. Uh, you know, uh, when you when you pull the full population and you get the results of the population, but only part of the population shows up to vote, the 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 possibility of error goes up uh, dramatically. And I think we've seen it a little bit uh, in the uh, Nova Scotia election, which I think looking at the most recent numbers, uh, they're going to be close, but just a little maybe outside the margin of error. And this has everything to do with turnout uh, and, and nothing to do with the accuracy of the polls at the time, which represents the entire population of voters. But when you have less, maybe 50% or less who show up, you know, it really makes it uh, harder uh, to have reliable poll results. And so I'm pretty sure you'll hear calls about the, about the need for, um, you know, either no polling or better polling uh, coming out of uh, an election like uh, just happened in Nova Scotia. Yeah, especially where there's there's been a lot of criticism, obviously, Don, of, of polling in recent, recent elections, but we still rely on it, right? And we still look to it. So, you know, we, we, want, it, we want it to work and be a somewhat accurate reflection of what, what's going to happen. Right? Uh, I just want to say, you know, during my time in the polling business, our, our company always got the outcome right. Just saying. <laughs> you got to get so back. You, so the, I, I just want to be clear, Don. You're <laughs> suggesting you would have predicted that 25 point swing. No, I would polls. not have. Nobody, <laughs> nobody had. Nobody would. <laughs> that it was a complete, uh, yeah, stunning surprise. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if there are any stunning surprises to come on the federal level soon. And I look forward to chatting with you guys at a later point about uh, how this all shakes out. But it's great to chat with you guys today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.